Hey, this is Scott Walker, and welcome to another edition of Freedom Fighters. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Earlier this week, I was out in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, We were in town showing some folks the uh, Reagan Ranch. As many of you know, I'm president of Young America's Foundation, and that has been a project of YAF, YAF, since 1998, uh, when uh, the organization took over the ranch, uh, purchased it. We now own and operate it. We were able to purchase it from uh, Mrs. Reagan, well, from both the Reagans, but Mrs. Reagan is the one who did that. And one of the cool things is it's exactly the way it was. In fact, someone who was with us on Tuesday literally said it feels like the president and the first lady could walk out. Michael Reagan, one of the president's sons, has said that to me repeatedly in the past. He feels like his father could just walk out. the, the house is arranged, the beds, the furniture, there are even the riding boots, uh, the saddles are up in the tack barn, all sorts of cool things. And over the uh, years, we bring in students. We just had high school and college students out at the Reagan Ranch Center for a conference at the end of 2021. We've got a whole bunch of conferences coming up already in the spring out at the Reagan Ranch, as well as other places, the Reagan Boyhood Home in Dixon, um, part of our offices in Reston, Virginia, and all across the country. In fact, in February, we'll have one of our big freedom conferences in Atlanta. But I was thinking this week in particular, not only about being at the ranch, but it was hard to believe this, 33 years ago this week, that President Ronald Reagan gave his farewell address, his farewell address to the nation from the awful Oval Office. It was on January 11, 1989. And I thought, uh, for this podcast, I, I want to share a little bit. I'm not going to read it all. Certainly, you could go on to YouTube and, and listen or watch all of it yourself. But I thought a little bit at the beginning, and then in particular, uh, a warning he gave at the end that I thought, like so many things about Ronald Reagan, he, he, back at the end of October, uh, we played for many of the students we work with on colleges and high schools across the country. Uh, we played the uh, the speech, A Time for Choosing, which was given at the end of the 1964 presidential campaign. It was really the spot in which Reagan kind of became known uh, to a much larger audience, at least a political audience. He'd, he'd been doing uh, things for GE. Of course, he'd been in the movies. He'd been the leader of the Screen Actors Guild. But at the end of the 64 campaign, just days before the election, uh, Reagan gave a speech called The Time for Choosing that in part uh, was a testimonial about Barry Goldwater, the nominee for Republicans in that year's election. But other than a little bit of personal stories about who Barry Goldwater was as a person, which I think had largely been uh, vacant uh, in, in terms of the national press covering anything except the attacks on Goldwater, But the rest of the speech really was, again, timeless, like so many things Reagan uh, has said over the years, Uh, whether it was his time before public office, his time as governor, and certainly his eight years as president, and even a number of the speeches he gave after that, uh, before kind of retreating uh, into his last uh, last years here on earth. But I thought it was... uh, particularly important for all of you listening to hear a bit of this. So January 11th, 1989, he's sitting in the Oval Office. He he addresses his fellow Americans. This would have been the 34th time he spoke to the American people from the Oval Office. And this was his last. So after a brief introduction, he said, one of the things about the presidency is that you always you're always somewhat apart. You spend a lot of time going by too fast in a car someone else is driving and seeing the people through tinted glass 
the parents holding up the child and the wave you saw too late and couldn't return. And so many times I wanted to stop and reach out from behind the glass and connect. Well, maybe I can do a little bit of that tonight. People ask how I feel about leaving. And the fact is, parting is such sweet sorrow. The sweet part is California and the ranch and freedom. The sorrow, the goodbyes, of course, and leaving this beautiful place. You know, down the hall and up the stairs from the office is the part of the White House where the president and his family live. There are a few favorite windows I have up there that I like to stand and look out, look out of early in the morning. The view is over the grounds here to the Washington Monument and the Mall and the Jefferson Memorial. But on mornings when the humidity is low, you can actually see past the Jefferson to the river, the Potomac, and the Virginia Shore. Someone said that that's the view Lincoln had when he saw the smoke rising from the Battle of Bull Run. I see more things, the, the grass on the banks, the morning traffic as people make their way to work now, and, and then a sailboat on the river. I've been thinking a bit about that. I've been thinking a bit at that window. I've been reflecting on what the past eight years have meant and mean. And the image that comes to mind, like a refrain, is a nautical one. A small story about a big ship and a refugee and a sailor. It was back in the early 80s at the height of the boat people. And the sailor was hard at work on the carrier Midway, which was patrolling the South China Sea. The sailor, like most American servicemen, were, was young, smart, and fiercely observant. The crew spied on the horizon a leaky little boat, and crammed inside were refugees from Indochina, hoping to get to America. The Midway sent a small launch to bring them to the ship and safety. As the refugees made their way through the choppy seas, one spied the sailor on the deck and stood up and called out to him. He yelled, Hello, American sailor! Hello, freedom man! A small moment with a big meeting. A moment the sailor, who wrote it in a letter, couldn't get out of his mind. And when I saw it, neither could I, because that's what it was to be an American in the 1980s. We stood again for freedom. I know we always have, but in the past few years, the world, but in the past few years, the world again, and in a way, we ourselves rediscovered it. It's been quite a journey this decade, and we held together through some stormy seas, and at the end, together, we're reaching our destination. President Reagan, in that address, went on to highlight many of the achievements that not just he, because he was always adamant about saying, you know, it's amazing what you could get done in Washington if you didn't care who got credit for it. He was always about sharing the credit. But clearly, for those of us who followed him, I came of age during that time. I was 12 years old when Ronald Reagan was running for president in 1980. I found my way through high school and eventually into my early years of college during his eight years as president of the United States, and probably as much as anyone other than my own parents, he influenced who I am today, not only as a conservative, but as an optimist. And you could see all throughout this farewell address his optimism. In fact, I loved having mentioned the ranch when he talked about, you know, parting is such sweet sorrow. The sweet part is California and the ranch and freedom. Certainly the freedom to get away, to be on his own. That's part of the reason why he spent 
cumulatively during his eight years, about one of those eight years at the ranch. It was his freedom, his way of getting away. But I also think in many ways it symbolized freedom. The Reagans had 688 acres there at the top of the peak. On one side, while riding his horse, he could go to certain lookout points and see the valley. On the other side, the ocean. Uh, he would clear the brush to clear the trails, some 17, almost 18 miles of trails around the ranch. I think in many ways for him, that ranch symbolized the freedom, he thought, of America, untapped, unlimited potential, not just of the physical grounds of like the early explorers, but, but untapped potential of the American people. He was an optimist. He believed in the American people. And so he brought that kind of optimism to, to helping restore some of our major crises that we faced in the late 1970s with an economy that was falling apart, with high inflation, with a, a break in the American spirit that influenced even who we were, whether it was the hostages in Iran, the, the problems around the world, even the, the failed 1980 election, or 1980s Olympics, I should say, in terms of U.S. involvement. All those things had us with a broken spirit. As a kid, I can still remember the the yellow the yellow ribbons around the tree out in front of our house in the small town of Delavan where I grew up during the 444 days that Americans were held hostage in Iran. One of them was from Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Kevin Herming, who now lives in north central Wisconsin, uh, the youngest of the bunch, uh, a Marine who had just been assigned, I believe, weeks before uh, the hostages were, were taken. And, and as Americans, we were just, you know, even the president, his allies talked about the malaise that we were in. And, and Reagan came in and he had a clear plan. He knew exactly where he wanted to go and how he was going to move the American people in the right direction. Even after the obvious setback of a failed assassination attempt, just months into his term, first term as president, we saw a tremendous turn, even though amazing challenges. I was thinking about this uh, this week as well. When I, you think about uh, uh, teachers in Chicago walking off the job, even though it clearly is against the law, it's a violation for public employees there to be going on strike. Reagan would have none of that. In August of 1981, in his first year as president, the air traffic controllers got greedy and, and uh, walked off the job. They went on strike. Reagan gave them 48 hours, gave them 48 hours. And then he fired nearly 13,000 air traffic controllers in what could have been a horrendous, horrendous setback. Uh, and certainly at the time, it wasn't easy. They had to make plans for the military and others filling in until they were able to get back uh, on par because Reagan had said, to those 13,000 some air traffic controllers, if you don't show up, you're not only fired, you'll be permanently banned from federal service. And only about 12, 1300 of them showed up. Uh, the rest, you know, played a little dare there and they lost big time. Some in the media over the years, in fact, not some, most, have made the error of thinking that this somehow was political retribution uh, against a union by a Republican president. Nothing could be further from the truth. Not only was Reagan a former union leader himself, the president of the Screen Actors Guild, he actually had been endorsed 
by Patco, the the union, the federal public employee union that represented the uh, air traffic controllers, endorsed him not just in the general election, but even earlier in the primaries. And so, if anything, their support for this candidate now president made their leaders feel cocky that they could get absolutely anything they wanted. And they they were the proposal was to give them a very generous increase, and it still wasn't enough. And so he gave them a warning. And it wasn't about political retribution. It was about what was right and what was wrong. The law was clear. They weren't allowed to strike. And when they did, he gave them notice and they were fired. Which to me is what the superintendent should be trying to do uh, in the city of Chicago uh, against the, uh, the union bosses, the union hacks who really don't care about the children there, but who are trying to walk off the, the job. Certainly, if Chicago was in Wisconsin under Act 10, they'd be able to do that. That's because of our our big, bold reforms. But you think about all these things that Reagan was able to do, and these were just in the earliest days, about a week and a half after the actions of the air traffic controllers at the Reagan ranch, at Rancho Del Cileo, his ranch in the heavens, his ranch in the skies, President Reagan signed on August 13, 1981, the largest tax cut in American history. And I love the fact that he signed it in the ranch. In fact, he signed it in his blue jeans with a jean jacket on, with his dog by his side, with a cowboy hat on, with nobody else there, uh, just standing in front of his very own home, which I thought was so symbolic to say, this isn't about the politicians of Washington. This isn't about a photo op. This is about giving people who live in homes, uh, their own homes all across America, more of their hard-earned dollars back. He talked about the spending cuts, and the tax cuts, and the need to put more power back in the hands of the American people. And then in 86, they did more of the same, and they pushed regulatory reform and other reforms, and he was able to convince not just Republicans, but to get this done, he had to reach across the aisle and get the few remaining blue dog Democrats to join with him. And in doing so, we had a a peace dividend from him standing up against communism and from him pushing for regulatory reform, for tax relief, for limited government, those things all brought about the longest sustained economic recovery in American history. Well beyond his presidency into the the four years of George Bush's presidency and even into the Clinton years, the American people were benefiting from the good work of Ronald Reagan. And so in the rest of this, most of the rest of this farewell address, he he talked about bringing back the American spirit. He talked about taking on communism. He talked about restoring the American economy uh, by putting faith in the small business owners and employers and the American people. Like any president, particularly after two terms, after having the largest electoral college victory in the history of America, he talked about all those things. But then at the end of his farewell address, he said something, a series of things that I think are important to repeat and to remember because of the times we're in today. He said, finally, there's a great tradition of warnings in presidential farewells, and I've got one that's been in my mind for some time. But oddly enough, it, it starts with one of the things I'm the proudest of over the past eight years, resurgence of national pride that I call the new patriotism. This national feeling is good, but it won't count for much and it won't last unless it is grounded in thoughtfulness and knowledge. An informed patriotism is what we want. 
And we're doing a good job teaching our children what America is and what she represents in the long history of the world. Those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American. And we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from the neighborhood, from the father down the street who fought in Korea, or the family who lost someone at Anzio. Or you got a sense of patriotism from school. And if all else failed, you could get a sense of patriotism from the popular culture. The movies celebrated democratic values and implicitly reinforced the idea that America was special. TV was like that too, at least through the mid-60s. But now, we're about to enter the 90s. This is really important. Listen into what Reagan said about this. If you don't listen to anything else in this podcast, really listen closely to this. He said, but now we're about to enter the 90s, and some things have changed. Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. And as for those who create the popular culture, well-grounded patriotism is no longer the style. Our spirit is back, but we haven't reinstitutionalized it. We've got to do a better job of getting across that America is freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. It's fragile. It needs protection. So we got to teach history based not on what's in fashion, but what's important. Why the pilgrims came here. Who Jimmy Doolittle was. And what those 30 seconds over Tokyo meant. You know, four years ago on the 40th anniversary of D-Day, I read a letter from a young woman writing to her late father who fought on Omaha Beach. Her, le- her name was Lisa Zanta Hin. And she said, we will always remember... We will never forget what the boys of Normandy did. Well, let's help her keep her word. If we forget what we did, we won't know who we are. I'm warning of an eradication of the American memory that could result ultimately in an erosion of the American spirit. Let's start with some basics. More attention to American history and a greater emphasis on civic ritual. And let me offer lesson number one about America. All great change in America begins at the dinner table. So tomorrow night in the kitchen, I hope the talking begins. And children, if your parents haven't been teaching you what it means to be an American, let them know and nail them on it. That would be a very American thing to do. Reagan went on to conclude his farewell address, but I just thought it's just so telling when he talks about we've got to do a better job of getting across that freedom, that America's freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise. And freedom is special and rare. It's fragile. It needs protection. And then when he gave us the charge, let's start with some basics. More attention to American history and a greater emphasis on civic ritual. More attention to objective American history. Not the 1619 Project. Now, that doesn't mean, let me be clear, that we should whitewash or sanitize American history. We should teach the good, the bad, and the ugly. But the story of this great nation, our, our, our journey uh, to become a more perfect nation, is something that began 
began not with a negative, but began with the declaration that all people are created equal, that all people are created equal, that all of us are endowed by, by God, by our creator, with certain rights, indistinguishable, unalienable uh, rights that, that are given to us by God, that amongst them, not limited to them, but amongst them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that the role of government is to defend and protect those rights. That's what formed this nation. Now, have we, have, have we had spots that are less than perfect during the past almost two, almost two and a half centuries? Absolutely. Were some of the people who were part of the founding of this country less than perfect? Every single one of them. As I've often said, the only perfect person who's walked on this planet hasn't been around in more than 2,000 years. But we've laid out a path towards a more perfect nation. And when you compare us both at the time of our founding, July 4th of 1776, when we declared our independence, and in the years since, compared to other nations around the world, we are that shining city on the hill. We are the shining city at the hill. And we're constantly moving down that path towards a more perfect nation. We need to make sure that at, if that path, if that journey is going to continue for all Americans, regardless of race or sex or background, religion, whatever it might be, young or poor, rich, or excuse me, rich or poor, young or old, black or white, whether you were born here or legally came here from somewhere else, everyone can be on that journey to enjoy the same freedoms and opportunities that were inherited to us by past generations. But to do that, we need to appreciate more attention to American history. Now, who we are, where we came from, and where we're headed. Not the stuff that teaches our young people to hate America. Not the stuff that teaches our young people to pit one group of Americans versus another. And, and on a greater emphasis of civic ritual, I, I think one of the things that caught my attention most this past year was when the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, you know, the basketball team in the NBA, one of these woke moments that we've seen all too often even amongst the corporate elite was talking about not playing the national anthem that's one of those civic rituals you know standing not kneeling standing for the american flag when it went by in a parade standing to sing the national anthem putting your hand over your heart when the flag went up or you said the pledge or you sang the national anthem these were things that united us these were civic rituals that everyone did didn't matter who you were, didn't matter your political or religious beliefs, whether you were Christian or Jewish or Muslim or Hindu, whether you were black or white, Hispanic, Hmong, didn't matter. These were the things that we all did. You know, the model of this country is e pluribus unum, out of many come one. And to me, the flag itself is a great reminder of that, of that model, that you look at the, the different threads that bring that flag together, the stars and the stripes, the red, white, and blue, all the different components. That means these threads are like the people of America coming together. Some of us who've lived here for generations, others who are newly found to America, all these things coming together. That's that shared civic ritual. There's far more that we need to do, but, but Ronald Reagan's warning, particularly when he talked about younger parents, you know, going into the 90s, younger parents are, aren't sure that unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. Think about millennials. Think about the, that was the warning he was talking about to the parents of millennials today and why so many have gone off on the wrong path. Reagan was right then, just as his words are right today. And we need to start 
with some basics, more attention to American history, and a greater emphasis on civic ritual. That's why I'm at Young America's Foundation right now. That's what we're doing on college campuses and high schools. And now this year we're excited to expanding even in reaching middle school, middle school students and their parents because the left and those who want to teach them to hate America are doing exactly the same thing. We've got to counter it every step of the way. I'm proud that we're training the next generation of leaders in the fight for freedom. Thanks for joining us today for this podcast. And until next time, keep fighting for freedom.